All right, this is Darker Days Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Crystal. How's it going, Crystal? It's going wonderful. How are you? I'm doing great. And we're also joined by Chig. How's it going, Chig? You know, if it was going any better, there'd be two of me. Wow. All right. And also joining us is a uh, very special guest, Chris Spivey, founder of uh, Darker Hue Studios, a uh, vice president of Gamma, a writer on uh, Call of Cthulhu, and uh, I believe also uh, Trail of Cthulhu, Harlem Unbound, Guys, this is in your second edition, Vampire the Masquerade, Vampire the Requiem, and a whole host of other games. So Chris, uh, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you here. Uh, thank you. I appreciate you actually bringing me on the show. After hearing all that, I almost sound impressed by myself until I meet me again. And I'm like, ugh. Well, I mean, it's, this, this isn't the case with uh, Chig where there's there's two of you, right? So unless there's an evil twin out there or something. Well, I'm the one with the beard, so I guess we'll have to figure out which one of us is the evil one. <laughs> all right, cool. Anyway, uh, so we're going to skip our uh, game update uh, for this episode and just dive into the news because we have uh, uh, quite a few things to bring up. So, yeah, just to uh, kind of keep this short, we want to bring up some of the conventions that uh, the Darker Days hosts have previously been at and some of the upcoming conventions as well. Uh, so a bunch of Darker Days hosts pitched in for the Onyx PathCon, doing a whole bunch of uh, actual play videos for Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf the Apocalypse, Monarchies of Mao, Cavaliers of Mars. I think that was uh, that was Crystal right there that did uh, yep. Cavaliers of Mars. Yeah. Uh, Kronks of Darkness, Hunter the Vigil, Deviant the Renegades, and all the episodes are up on YouTube. So a lot of very cool stuff. Uh, Crystal, you were there for, uh, for most of the convention. Uh, what'd you think of it? I had a lot of fun. I got to play with a bunch of people that I've never played with. And actually, um, hear a lot of the Onyx Path people speak about um, their experiences and their advice and stuff um, that don't normally get to go to U.S. conventions, which is really awesome. Because um, mm -hmm. a lot of times, uh, since we all work remotely, I don't know a lot of these people. <laughs> so so getting to actually know them and hear them speak and stuff like that is really, really awesome. And coming up, uh, Crystal, you're going to be at Gen Con online. I will. I'll be on a couple of panels that have been confirmed so far and a couple that are unconfirmed. I'm going to be doing uh, horror in gaming as well as research researching history for game setting. Ooh. Yeah. I may know someone that's going to be on that panel with you. Yeah, you are going to be on the panel with me. I'm really excited about that. Awesome. Nice. And uh, I'm hoping to uh, probably attend Gen Con Online a little bit. And uh, Chick, do you think you're going to be there too? Uh, anything is possible. I'll try to make it, but I, I can't make promises at this time. All right. Fair enough. And Darker Days might be at PAX Online. We'll have to see. Um, still have to uh, try to get stuff registered, get things approved, and all of that. But, uh, you know, we're pretty excited and I uh, think we might be able to pull something off. And I think as a, a final thing, Chris, um, I guess beyond this, uh, this Gen Con Online panel, is there anything else you have coming up? Any other convention appearances or uh, similar things? I'm sort of taking a lot of the year off from actual conventions, unless they're virtual right now. Mm -hmm. Given the, the impact of COVID and how it's being handled by the government, I'm a little less inclined to go and risk my health and someone else's health. Not my thing. Yeah, understood 100%. Um, I'm not going to any real con any in-person conventions for the, uh, the rest of the year, basically until there's a vaccine, probably. So maybe never. We'll see. So I definitely understand and uh, agree with that 100%. 
Yep, that's legit. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And I think with that, that's pretty much it for the news that we wanted to cover this episode, because we wanted to just dive straight into this interview with Chris Spivey. Yeah, so we are very interested to hear about some of your background in gaming. So how did you get started with gaming and role-playing games? Uh, I think like a lot of people, I started with the red box set. A friend of mine and I picked up the picked up the red box set when we were around eight, a local game store, and we had a chance to sort of read through it because we've been reading a lot of fantasy books and everything else together. And it was just a chance to start crafting stories together. Pretty quick, we actually met up with a group of other kids in school that were playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and so they sort of pulled us into their gang for a while. It gave me my chance to to play a bard, and I had a, a torture genie. Which basically means he liked to create the most immaculate trap-filled dungeons you could ever see and start people to go through them. Yeah, his objective was mm -hmm. to see how many of you he could kill. And mm -hmm. yeah, that kind of quashed my general vibe for fantasy. Told with the more I read fantasy books, I see that there's primarily just white protagonists and elves and magic and all that was accepted, but there wasn't anyone that looked like me fantasy stuff I was saying. It just sort of became a reoccurring theme and that pushed me further and further away from fantasy. And I transitioned to science fiction that I really, really enjoyed. So what, uh, what science fiction games really drew you in then? Uh, just kind of curious about the systems and uh, which ones might have inspired you to, uh, you know, kind of grow when you're, you're gaming. So it's funny as this one's going to sound. The first sci-fi game I picked up was the old Buck Rogers game. That, that, is, that is how old I am now. Uh, it was the like the big people in the front cover running sort of at you, and then there was two other softbound books with it. Came a little box set, and from there I made the jump into Star Wars. And after that, it was just sort of a it's up all. Nice, cool. So, how did you get started writing for games after all that? <laughs> um, I basically started almost right away. Even when we had the red box set. I became the de facto GM for the game. And that meant coming up with something that would keep what else entertained. And part of it is if there's only the two of us playing for a long time, I had to write something that would like encapsulate the entire character's back history and story. And thinking in that way sort of mainly led into more and more writing. And I wrote my first full-blown game by the time I was 14. It was a, a riff, a riff on Stormbringer and Conan set in Africa. Nice. I still have that somewhere floating around in the house. Wow, you still you still kept all the uh, the old paperwork, all the original rules that you were writing back then. I like how you make it sound grandiose. Some people would say that's a pack rat, but uh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really cool. Uh, so, I mean, from there, um, did you start writing for uh, uh, other companies, uh, or did you just dive into starting your own, like, RPG company, RPG development? No, so um, after, after that, I actually tried to write Doctor Who novels, and I wrote a couple, and I sent them off to BBC way back in the day. I think this was probably late 90s, early 2000s. The actual first published work I did was maybe within the past years. 
I had a chance to met Neil, Neil Raymond Price at Metatopia. And through Neil, I had a chance to do some Onyx Path work. And right before that, I actually met Robin Laws at Gen Con one year. And I came up to Robin and I was like, hey, Robin, I've got this great idea about increasing diversity in gaming. Uh, can I like take an hour of your time and buy you a drink and like spill all this out and see what we can do? And he looked at me and said, that sounds great, but this is Gen Con. Uh, so here is, here's my Skype and contact me when in a couple of weeks. And after I followed up with Robin, a few weeks later, we talked for maybe four hours over our call. And I got a lot of different insights from him. And he put me in touch with Kat and Simon, who own Cobrain Press. And from there, I had a chance to write for, I want to say it was Out of the Woods. And I think that was one of the first pieces that I wrote that was published. Okay, nice. And I guess from there, Chris, you uh, eventually started Darker Hue Studios. So could you kind of talk about that a little bit and uh, give us the elevator pitch on what the purpose of that project is? Darker Studios is my own company that tries to increase diversity and inclusion in gaming one game at a time. A lot of it comes from, I briefly touched on Metatopia, and meeting Neil is when I went to Metatopia. I was actually trying to push the idea of Harlem Bounds, and I was telling all these great stories about Harlem, trying to get people to engage with it, trying to get publishers to be more receptive of it. And most of the feedback I got from everyone that wasn't a publisher was like, this this is great. Publishers gave me a lot of that sounds interesting, but no one will buy it. And constantly hearing that over and over. And it wasn't just for Roman Bound, it was for some other pieces I wrote for publishers trying to like increase some of the inclusion of the books I was working on. And I kept hearing that won't sell. I thought to myself, the best way to try to do this in is to make my own company that focuses on this. So if we can put out more products and show people how amazing the work is and that people do engage with this and they want to see themselves, they can try to help change that. But I guess that's kind of a long elevator pitch. No, I mean, that's great. That's uh, that's definitely very inspiring and, and uh, cool to hear about, um, you know, just kind of taking in the fate of these games, you know, to, it, how you can influence them into your own hands um, and starting your own company. I mean, Harlem Unbound is is a, a very bold and interesting product, and I think I'm going to just kind of shift around our show notes right here to dive into that project a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about Harlem Unbound. It's an incredible book, uh, very interesting. Uh, now has, of course, the uh, Darker Hughes Studios version, I believe, the first edition, but also a second edition that was kind of revised and and put out by uh, Chaosium as well. So, um, you know, they have, I guess, finally kind of accepted that uh, that book into the uh, the general mythos as well. Reading through it, I found it to be very well-researched and very interesting. Um, could you kind of talk about the uh, the setting of Harlem Unbound a little bit? You know, the I mean, the real historical facts that are kind of contained within it? Uh, sure. One of the key points for, I think, any of the work that I'm trying to do that's historically focused is that the history and the research needs to be spot on. Because I'm not going to say there'll be a lot of naysayers, but one of the first things that people like to do is find something that's inaccurate, then attack that and use that as their vehicle to try to dismantle anything that you're trying to do that moves or works towards progress and inclusion. And for all the writers, I kept stressing that 
we have to have the history on. We have to make sure that we know what we're talking about. We have to understand how it flows and how everything works together. And so one of the big things for the book is that it's focused on the Harlem Renaissance, but the book itself is actually kind of a love letter to Harlem. Hmm. Because without Harlem, we wouldn't have the United States as we have it now. Like for instance, the first victory that was won in the um, War of Independence was the Battle of Harlem Heights. And that's where Washington actually had his first real victory that sort of changed the morale of the soldiers and everything else. Yeah, right. And that's just one of the amazing things that Harlem did. But my story, as I wanted to incorporate the mythos into it with the research, I wanted to find the time that showed black excellence, inclusion, um, rock stars of an age. We're changing the world through actions, words, their work, something inspiring. And so doing that alone, circle back to the research portion, made it more engaging even for everyone doing the research. Because one of the fun things about having Slack was that you'd be going through and people doing the research and even two or three in the morning, someone would pop up with an at everyone, oh my God, do you know that blah, 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 did blah, blah, blah here with this person? And then it would spiral off in like a two-day conversation about this one little granular fact that we found that is so amazing. That may be sentence or two in the book. That level of depth of research and knowledge about the subject matter let us then convey that feeling into the words of the book. And then you could actually almost hear it and see it as you're reading it. That's what well-researched and written history does. And we didn't tell you everything. We told you enough to get you interested so that people will go, I want to know more about this and they'll go and they'll google it and they'll look it up themselves i actually had some people send me <laughs> emails saying you didn't put enough history in this book i mean <laughs> i don't want to say i'm in that camp but there's definitely uh it was really interesting and, and pretty exciting to be looking through um i think specifically like the uh oh. the section that kind of goes through the different kind of neighborhoods of harlem different different shops that are there and saying Oh wow, this seems like really detailed, really incredible. Is this a is this a real person? Is this a real shop? And then you go and you look it up, and it is. You know, that was a, a real person that was there, and the kind of mixture of um, so many so many real places and the occasional you know fictional characters as well uh, really does kind of bring this this era, this nineteen twenties era of Harlem to life, uh, which I think is really cool, and, and you did a great job with it. Uh, I think one of the biggest compliments was a native New Yorker that was also a reviewer talked about how reading this book was like them walking down the street in their neighborhood. That is just, ah, oh. and we know that we did something right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. Kind of my follow-up question about that is what sort of challenges uh, did you encounter when researching this book? Um, I was thinking about this more in like, um, was it hard to find a lot of, you know, uh, detailed facts about certain aspects that you were trying to research? Absolutely. The problem is that with histories written by, uh, by white colonizers is that all the stories and deeds other people have done are either erased, mostly forgotten, or stolen and given credit to white person instead and so having to go and find out what each little individual nugget of a truth is 
it leads to additional hours or days of more research to find if it's accurate. Oh, yeah. And if you find out that it is accurate, then you need to have multiple sources to confirm the accuracy of your assertion. Otherwise, you'll have someone say, well, this one book says it, but all these other books written by these white people who are primarily old school historians, because there's even sort of like a revisionist, uh, revisionist history now that's trying to go back and change some of the history in text to actually fit close to what occurred. And that's a lot of the books that I've been trying to use more of, because they, if nothing else, they give more names and more facts. And with the names and facts, we can go and then we do investigative research yeah yeah it's exact kind of challenges i thought you might encounter it's uh it's pretty wild just as like a kind of a side note i do a lot of research into ethiopia actually but it's just so challenging to find new research that's also translated into english so i can definitely commiserate with uh just just the challenges that uh you must have encountered on this book for the seven seas book that i did i actually wrote about axum oh and trying to find information about Axum was immensely difficult. Interesting. That was for Seven Seas? They have a... Uh, yeah, Seven Seas, the land of... Golden Fire. Golden Fire. Ah, interesting. Very would have been sad if I didn't remember the name of that book. Okay, cool. I'll definitely have to check that out. I'd be, uh, I'd be very interested. I actually have the... Uh, there's an Ars Magica book that's... Uh, takes place in east africa and uh it's it's kind of interesting i don't really know how accurate it is overall but uh definitely definitely is kind of fun to flip through so chris kind of following up on that so we've talked about the history and you know kind of making this location come alive but this is also a a source book that's uh for use with call of cthulhu could also be used with uh, trail of cthulhu and a lot of other kind of mythos games uh, could you highlight some of the cool like mythos monsters and avatars and uh, other such like uh, game mechanics that are introduced in uh, Harlem Unbound that might be useful to keepers and such? So one of the big things was even though it was going to be this great history piece, if it was just a history book, there was no way that gamers would buy it, play it, and then talk about it right. and sort of expose other people to it. So I wanted to have it be as accessible as possible for everyone. And as I mentioned, growing up in Alabama, we didn't have a lot of money. So I wanted people to be able to buy the book and have a complete book if they wanted it or source book. That's when I went and I approached Cat uh, and Simon and I asked him for use of the logo to say, hey, I want to use the gumshoe rules. I want to include it in Roman Bound. So people can have a complete game and they won't need anything else. So if someone wants to play Roman Bound with gumshoe, they, they don't need any other accessories. And the harder push was to go to Chaosium and establish a license and license and deal with Chaosium to use the seventh edition rule set for book. I think that deal took a year. And now that I had both basically major houses of the mythos, uh, that gave me something that I knew that a lot of those readers might be interested in because I knew it was going to lose some people just from the general topics in the book. I knew that like straight off the bat, like 15, 20 percent of people. One of the, I think the, the premier uh, avatar that we made would be the Baron Blues, which is sort of our own riff on a mix of Azathoth, the King in Yellow, and just some old Harlem swagger. Yeah. And the Baron actually does show up in one of the scenarios in the new 7th edition book. 
made a, a special note and it's a scenario that I wrote that sort of highlights the Dark Tower. It gives a chance to the players to actually engage with all of the luminaries at a time, deal with some mafia, deal with some little extra trapdoor murder mystery, basically. And it was also sort of a, uh, a tribute to Cousin Zora. So the Baron plays a, a prominent role in that scenario. Yeah, sweet. I was hoping you bring that one up because that's also the uh, that was the avatar that kind of stood out to me, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you don't really see many uh, avatars of Azathoth, I I don't think, in the uh, the Cthulhu mythos. So that was a kind of a cool, unique addition uh, for Hollow Unbound. Some people didn't like the fact that it was Azathoth. There's a lot of debate about what Azathoth really is, what it stands for. That uh, hmm. like I think the stats in the Call of Cthulhu book, Azathoth has a one intellect or something out of a hundred so there's a lot of my interpretation of it it worked perfectly well yeah i mean i liked it too so uh i consider it a definite success there's another uh cool scenario because you're, you're mentioning the scenarios there's there's several of them here in this book and one that really stood out to me which i thought was a real interesting addition was the your name in the book uh scenario which while the rest of harlem unbound takes place in 1920s harlem this scenario takes place in uh, the 1680s Harlem. I think it's just really cool. Uh, what inspired the inclusion of this much more radical historical adventure? It's something I had in mind for the first edition book. But the first edition, uh, we were already testing the limits of everything we had. And given that after the book won the Golden East and Chaosium, after winning Innies, came to me and said, hey, we'd like to do a second edition of the book. I figured at that point, if I wanted to really add a little something extra that I wanted to do in the first edition, this would be my chance to do it. Because as I mentioned, the book isn't just about the Renaissance, it's about Harlem. And that right. time period in Harlem is where you had the English beat by the Dutch, and then the Dutch beat the English, and they sort of riffed back and forth for a while for control. And when the scenario happens, I want to, if I remember right, it's the English are actually victors but it is so recent that the dutch are still in control of the city yep. so you have these weird like english faction you have a dutch faction and then you have all of the have, like all the other have all the holomites that are there trying to figure out how to get by and what to do coupled with that then we add in the mythos element and this is kind of like uh i know brainer but so you name the book so obviously it's going to be not about that uh, so that was a, and I wanted someone that uh, could help me craft the story how I needed to be, and Neil was nice enough to put me in touch with Steffi, and we sort of crafted the story together. Oh man, that was a that was a Steffi Devon uh, co-creation. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So um, Harlem Unbound is actually being used as curriculum at some colleges now, which is really awesome. And from your perspective on this, how does role-playing game uh, games such as Harlem Unbound fit into academic applications? There are so many different ways it can. One of which is it just teaches you how to engage and interact socially with other people, regardless of their background. Once you're sort of at a table together and you've moved aside most of the BS, I use the word most because regardless of what happens, there's some that's always there and you have to work together. But it teaches you how to at least try to interact and empathize with other people for what they're going through and their struggle as you're engaging and talking to them. It also helps build imagination, creative skills. It helps develop the ability to write and deduce 
basic mathematics. But for Harlem Unbound, I know that the professor that's using it is using it specifically for its discussion on race and how race influences media and what we can do to combat racism in that in the different aspects. And uh, uh, what is your advice for game writers on trying to find a, uh, find a more academic fit um, for their games? Do the research, basically. <laughs> if you're gonna, it depends on what sort of academic you should Bound was particularly written to be more historically focused and do things like that. If you're doing something that's more film or entertainment based, then you sort of do your research in that avenue and then you generate it something along those lines. So it's not a one shop answer. It's something you have to tailor for each individual project that you want and what you want to accomplish. Mm, interesting. Uh, I'm actually, I, I had not heard about this until this morning. What sort of a professor is, uh, is using Harlem Unbound? Um, he's a history professor. They actually ah. flew me out to the university last year and for their uh, conference. And I got to actually run a live session and present a presentation about common bound, about diversity or lack of diversity in the industry, and have a chance to work with influencers that are helping shape like the school's curriculum. So that was a lot of fun. Okay, awesome. That's really cool. I've actually, I've never heard of a history professor using role-playing games, but it makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, that could be a cool thing to see more of in the future. Is is Harlem Unbound in a museum or something too? I think it it was in three museums or maybe four. Uh, I want to say a copy of Woods in the Mets special collections room and a few other places. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's gotten a lot of accolades in the academic community, which is amazing and awesome. Yeah, that's really cool to hear about. It was. I'm still kind of blown away by it. I can only imagine. <laughs> Awesome. So is there anything else you want to highlight about uh, Harlem Unbound? Uh, so as I think some people may have already noticed before, I am not usually on podcasts just for my own innate awkwardness. So what I decided to do to help with help with that in Harlem Unbound is I'm going to run a Roll20 game and try to get someone to put it on Twitch for me. I can publicly embarrass myself if you can see me on camera in Harlem Unbound. All right. I mean, don't worry about it too much. Uh, it's pretty easy to run a game online. It's it's pretty much the same thing as doing it in person. So I don't think you have anything to fear. And if you need recommendations for uh, folks that can help you set something up on Twitch, we can definitely hook you up. We can talk about that after the show. Appreciate that. Um, but the I guess the big pitch that Chaos would like for me to say is the hard edition should be out in the next week or so. And there'll be two versions. One's the software threat, and the other one is the amazing now Emmy nominated cover art by Brennan Reese for the second edition. Yeah, I saw that announcement today, which is super awesome as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely good to hear. Um, so I think that kind of wraps things up with Harlem Unbound. Uh, Chig, do you want to take things away uh, asking about Cthulhu Confidential? Absolutely. Uh, so you worked on uh, Cthulhu Confidential uh, writing the Langston Wright section. Um, in addition to being for a different game system, Gumshoe, uh, Cthulhu Confidential is designed to be run one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, do you find writing horror for one player and one GM more challenging than writing for a group? Hands down, yes. Because part of the thing is for Cthulhu Confidential is that regardless of how you're writing, you have to make sure that you're not going to kill this person. You need to present horror in such a manner that it's gripping and scary, 
and that they don't break or shatter until the end of the story. Because you, you don't want to have your protagonist uh, in a four-hour time slot go about 30 minutes and then is like consumed by the Shoggoth. End of story. But instead, you're going to want the Shoggoth to come in possibly like tear your antagonist, ah, scare your protagonist, and maybe do something that hurts him but progresses the story onward. Having to make sure that you have all those little widgets in place is harder for a one-to-one because they don't have a team of other people with other skills or assets they can pull to use to help them accomplish the next task. It has to be tailored specifically for a character and what that one character may be able to successfully do or not do and keep it moving forward, but at the same time, produce enough uncertainty that they're hesitant about some of their actions and they're brave about other actions. But to sustain the horror mood at the same time. Interesting. Yeah, that that does make a lot of sense because I'd be upset if I signed up to uh, play a four-hour session and being the only player, my guy died half an hour in. So yeah, I can understand that being uh, something you'd want to watch out for. Um, what uh, what uh, information or skills or what can you take from uh, from this process writing for one single PC? Uh, and apply to uh, to larger groups of players or characters. I think the biggest part of that is going to be the intensity level. When you're playing one to one, there is is about ten or twelve times more intense as you don't have anyone else to talk to or associate with. And to try to take that feeling and that pressure and apply it to a larger group is more complicated, but you've acquired additional skills doing the one-to-one that can help sort of implement using the same effect in a party of four to six people. Because a lot of it is how I mentioned before, they have all the resources and assets to call on. So it creates a false sense of security. But by doing the one-to-one, you learn what elements of that you can sort of peel away to slowly remove that sense of security, regardless of the size of the group have the mood that you want for your game awesome i'm uh, i'm definitely taking notes on uh what to do to my group in our upcoming sessions so thanks for that <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about we're going to shift to uh chicago by night now um which you were one of the writers on with me um and we got to collaborate a little bit on a couple of things um so i wanted to ask you a couple of questions about that so chicago by night was really, really dear and close to all of the writers um, for one reason or another. Um, what is your connection to it, and uh, what did you want to bring to the setting? I wanted to take away some of the tropes that were in previous editions of the book. As a, a writer, a reader, and gamer of color, seeing those things even then was painful and hurtful to me. And given the chance to work on Chicago by Night, which is just a premiere book. Um, it's one of the reasons why I, when Matthew, uh, Matthew Dorkins first put out the call for people to say, hey, do you want to work on the book? I jumped on the chance to do it. And then I also jumped on the chance to say, take Kevin Jackson, who was just horribly stereotypical in editions of the book, to change that and make that into a different narrative. Yeah. Uh, Jackson's narrative in Chicago by Night is amazing. Um, and he's totally made that city what it is. 
which is great. Um, and then what were some of uh, your inspirations for the characters and new places within that setting? Um, well, I wrote a lot, well, I wrote maybe four or five different specific uh, characters, Jackson was amongst them, but I wanted to bring back uh, course, and I wrote a couple members of them. And I took a lot of inspiration from one of them for uh, Kathy Glenn's was just female musicians from like the seventies that were hard rockers and they were really nervous about and kind of infused some of that into her. Oh, also at the same time, adding additional diversity to the character because there's no reason the character had to be just a white personality. And it was a mix of a lot of different elements. I even got to bring in some of the Chicago Renaissance a little bit for Jackson when I touched on him and for Damien the Sheriff. There's a, a stereotype about that he originally embodied that I also wanted to change. I wanted to age, age the character up without removing some of the boyish, boyish charms that the character had and to make it a little bit more visceral to be vampire. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> I'm actually, I don't really remember the uh, the Jackson character that much. Could you go into some more detail? Because you two keep talking about them and uh, how critical they were for this book. So the original Kevin Jackson uh, was a drug dealer and low life is the best way to put it, that had a fortification and things like that. Hmm. It was a very bland, stereotypical black person should be selling drugs. And did I miss anything? No. Um, and then where did you take him from there for, for the current setting? Uh, so I didn't want to throw away um, all the work that was already there because it gave a good foundation. But instead, I did the same thing I'm telling all, as I tell all the writers I work with to do context people's stories. People just aren't one dimension. Like, no one's just good, no one's bad. And so for Jackson, I went back and I rooted his family in the civil rights. I talked a little bit about redlining, how his family was actually a somewhat affluent. They're upper middle class family, but they couldn't get into better housing because the government sort of redlined African-American families, which they refused to let them move into nicer neighborhoods, banquet and provide them loans. And so they're forced to live in the situation. And then that situation would influence how their kids grow up and develop. And one of which you have like these parents who are trying to do the right thing, trying to make their kids do the right things. But then you have kids in an environment where I need to conform to this model here, regardless of what you want me to do, or I can't walk out of the house. So I use that to have him go through some of the things that he was already there, he did. But also then you infuse the actual additional layer to it where he wants to make a change and he wants to do things differently. And so he's using this current environment and situation that he's had to build himself into. That is, a, I want to say, infamous, but it has a lot of power and influence associated with it. And using that to try to better what he believes would be a better course for kin society and for marginalized people. But as it's vampire, you have to add in the vampire twist that regardless of how much you want to do these things, you also have a beast that is innate inside of you trying to like miss those desires to be something a little different. And so you go to, it starts moving towards a different extreme for the character. But instead of being stuck in like a building surrounded by dealers, he is actually a premier person around town focusing on STEM for all the kindred and everyone else in the city, 
like progressing science and everything else. It's all being funded by the drugs. Hmm. Interesting. That's definitely a, uh, that's quite fitting for the setting as well. So, um, yeah, definitely very interesting. Then, um, what is your favorite part of Chicago by Night? That is an impossibly hard question. <laughs> I, oof. I know, it's like trying to pick your favorite baby. I'm going to give, I'm going to give two answers. One of which is a little, little self-aggrandizing. Uh, I really like the, the riff I did on Kathy Glenn's. And that, that was all for me. And the other thing that I really like about the book is the dynamic between all the characters because they're written by lots of different writers and everyone had a chance to see what other everyone else wrote and then alter theirs a little bit to sort of spike up hostilities and like have double dealings and that layer of complexity or role-playing is just guess. Yeah, cool. So uh, I think that's pretty much it for uh, Chicago by Night. I just had a, a quick question about Geist, the Senior's second edition, a book that we reviewed, and uh, it's definitely a really interesting addition to, uh, a, or a really interesting update to a Chronicles of Darkness game. And I was wondering, uh, Chris, what you worked on in that one? Um, that was one of the, the first things I wrote. And cool. Travis was, was great to talk to. We actually did a lot of Doctor Who riffing. If memory serves, I wrote part of The Quiet Places, which was, for me, 1960s DC and 1910s Alabama, coupled with the storytelling section, one other one that eludes me at the moment. Yeah, it's been a while since I read it. Did the storytelling section kind of discuss the uh, the, the kind of like endgame modes that uh, that Geist had, like the uh, your group of Unbound uh, kind of take over uh, part of the underworld, maybe make it better? maybe become the new awful death lords themselves <laughs> uh it talks to so i think someone more about comparing a one shot versus a campaign game oh, okay and gotcha then we go somewhat more into the actual higher level sort of aspects about guys um it's like the carnival how you actually wow i'm, re I'm remembering bits and pieces we get this now uh yep. when I, say, <laughs> I think this is one of the first things i wrote this maybe seven years ago whoa it takes a while for books to, to come out. Yeah, uh, understood. No, interesting. All right, cool. I mean, it's uh, it, it's definitely a really rad book, and um, yeah, the the settings in there as well are are very interesting. There's a ton of them, and uh, it's cool to hear that you worked on some of them. One of the things Travis really wanted was for people to be able to play in different times and in different elements and in different ways, and that was one of the through lines that he that he really pushed for us for lot the project. It was great to actually be able to come up with two radically different settings. And I know for, I remember DC well because I have a huge love of David Bowie, and I got to throw in some Bowie puns and other things like that for the DC one. I'm still looking for all of your David Bowie references. Uh, I am also a David Bowie yeah. fan, so. Well, if you look close <laughs> enough, you'll probably find something in every single book that I've worked on. <laughs> there may be deep cuts, though. Uh, very possibly the same on my end, just even subconsciously, so. And uh, there, there's even a joke or two that I slipped into Chicago by Night that Matthew caught one of. And so I think he's on to me now. Oh, probably. <laughs> nice, nice. Cool. So I think uh, in general, uh, Chris, what's up next for you and Darker Hue Studios? What kind of cool projects are uh, coming up in the near future or have recently had uh, uh, Kickstarters and stuff? So I'm focused on finishing up Haunted West right now. Um, given 
protest, COVID, and a lot of other real thing, real world events like that. Uh, my timeline is will be generous to use the word shattered, and so I'm having to make sure I get that out to all the backers because I made them a promise, and I intend to keep that as close to target as I can. After Haunted West is released, I'm looking at space. I originally had a well, I have a sci-fi that's an Afro-Judeo science fiction idea. Uh, I work. I've been working on it in the background for about a year and a half now. Can can hold on? Can you define Afro-Judeo for me? This uh, <laughs> this could be up my alley. This is interesting. Uh, no, I, I'm I'm not going to give out any other spoilers on it. Only people that don't know anything else will be the team of writers, and then our people see it on Kickstarter. Okay, I am uh, I'm on the edge of my seat right now. This uh, this sounds interesting. It gives me a chance to actually not focus as much on history and getting to do a little bit more free writing and creating an entirely new universe. Can you tell us anything about uh, Masks of the Mythos, or is that still all under wraps? Uh, what would you like to know? I, I, I have a lot of, a lot of liberal leave right now. Uh, I'd like to know anything you can tell us about that. It sounds great. A uh, Cthulhu crossover style source book for Scion. Tell me more. <laughs> uh, so the basic, basic theme for the book was that he didn't want the mythos just to be evil because the mythos isn't evil. The mythos is unknowable. It's it's an other. And so for us, that was our that was sort of the watchword thing type thing. Is that the mythos is like antimatter being put into a matter? It's going to cause disruptions and start to break down everything around. It. And now, how humans or scions choose to interact with that then dictates whether or not it's going to be a good or evil use. How they use this thing. Now, this thing they've gotten may start to break them down. And so, I had we had that, and to have scion be somewhat more grounded. I went for approach of setting it in the Miskatonic, Miskatonic Hollow, which is like all the Lovecraftian cities and everything else. So we have um, Innsmouth, Arkham, and all those, and a lot of the, the book is focused around those and the different aspects. You could play a full-blown Mythos Scion, or you can play a normal Scion. Normal Scions can become Mythos Scions, and little things like that. How, so they can get... You know, I was adopted by Narlathotep. <laughs> or if you decide that you really want to start reading all those ancient tombs that are just lying, tomes that are lying around, who knows? That's always a great idea for a scion to do. I mean, it's a great idea for anyone to do. Reading is fundamental, Crystal. That's the, the quick skinny on Mythos. And it should hopefully be coming to Kickstarter very soon. Oh, I will keep my eyes open for it. I know it's in line for it. So, all right. Um, Chris, we wanted to open this up for you for any advice that you'd have for anyone looking to run any of your games, be it Harlem Unbound or like Haunted West, anything like that, Cthulhu Confidential, any, any advice that you would give as a writer to, to uh, GMs? It's going to be your game once you put it on your table. And... As a writer, all I ask is that you are respectful to what I'm trying to do. However, you want to implement that into your game that is not full, harmful, or disrespectful of other people. And if you mess up, which we all do, 
acknowledge it, apologize, and try to do better. That is even, I think that's almost like a direct quote from Harm One Bound. We're, we're human, we mess up. Yep, I remember reading that. And I think it's important to bring up that uh, Chris did an awesome job with the storytelling section of Harlem Unbound and definitely gives you some, gives anyone some really good advice on how to tackle some really serious subject matter. And again, that's, that's kind of like if you want to as well. I mean, there's a, a variable level that things can be applied. And that was to try to make the book more accessible so people play it. Because one of the things about it is if it's not played, then it's not the same. Because you, you may have supported me by buying the book, but it's on your shelf and no one's talking about it. It's not influencing or trying to change anything if you're in a message. It's more along the lines of uh, you need to go out, you need to run it, people will play it, talk about it. If they, Even if they hate it, they'll still tell other people about it. There's this crappy game by this guy that's a hack. I played for four hours and I wasted my time. Someone laughing may go, well, I'm going to go see what this guy's talking about, and they may like it. Someone loves it and they tell someone else about it, they may look at it and then hate it. But it's being talked about and it's an ongoing conversation and we need more of them faster than what we're having them. So do we have any uh, final closing questions for uh, Chris? No, I'm good. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I think the uh, kind of final things to start wrapping things up here, Chris, is um, where can people find you? Do you have like a, a Twitter uh, that you like to use or a, a website perhaps? Uh, the best place to find me is going to be at darker underscore hue on Twitter. I've uh, got a website if you want to visit. I myself visit occasionally. It needs to be updated a little bit. So Twitter would be the best place if you want to catch my, my daily tweet. Okay, nice. Awesome. And uh, we are, of course, uh, Darker Days Radio. You can email us at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. You can uh, go to facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. Um, we have Twitter at darkerdaysradio. And, of course, we're on Instagram, Tumblr, on Tabletop, YouTube, Twitch. And, of course, we have our super fun Discord, which has a link in the show notes. And uh, I think that's a wrap for this show. Um, definitely really awesome to talk to you, Chris. Uh, really insightful. And uh, you've done some awesome work. And I think we're all really, uh, again, at the edge of our seats to see uh, what else you come up with at uh, Darker Hughes Studios. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, um, thank you all for, for taking time today to do this. I appreciate that, too. Absolutely. No problem. And of course, Crystal and Chig, thank you for uh, making it over here for a very uh, early episode, uh, especially for Chig. You had to rush home from work to uh, to make it here. Definitely really totally appreciate you, uh, you getting here and definitely not driving over the speed limit. I would never. <laughs> all right. And of course, to all the listeners out there, take it easy and have a good night. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. Occam's Laser.